Jerry, at times, being married to one woman can be pretty rough. Can you imagine more? I would never. <laughs> Fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening, you beautiful bastards? Uh, I realized that I view my entire world through the lens of a straight man. Welcome back to another week, you beautiful bastards. We have a fantastic guest this week. Jerry, who are we talking to? Uh, we're talking to Dr. Elizabeth Sheff, and she's an expert in all things uh, non-monogamous. <laughs> which, Relationships. Uh, that was a new... <laughs> yeah. So this is a new one for me and Grizz. I've never been one for having multiple partners at a time. Uh, as you'll find out in the episode, it's just too much stress for me to want to care about. If you can't tell... What about you, Grizz? Jerry sounds like a bitch. <laughs> yes, I do. So... If you listen to last week's episode, you will have uh, noticed that I was talking about getting my COVID shot. Well, I currently sound like this because I got my COVID shot a week He's ago. Got the bitch internals. So I'm hoping that sometime before the end of the summer, I'll have my voice back. I know that you listeners love my sultry, <laughs> sexy voice the way it usually is. Uh, unfortunately, you're, you're going to have to listen to me sounding like an 80-year-old smoker. For... At least a few minutes. Um, so today's topic's an interesting one. Uh, we found it fascinating. She's a, she's an educated woman, Dr. Eli is. And so she knows all the terms and what they mean. If you're... We if, do not. Yeah. We didn't. We were lost a if lot. If you don't know what the words are. I mean, Jerry kept on messing it up with hetero, with homosexuals. I don't even know how that happened, dude. <laughs> it was just... Sometimes I'm just overloaded with information. I just... I look at everything through the lens of a straight white guy. So let's get to it. Let's go talk to Dr. Elizabeth Sheff. Jerry, what do we got going on today? Well, as usual, we have another guest today. And uh, today we have Dr. Elizabeth Sheff. Hi, hi, Dr. Elizabeth. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no problem. We're excited to have you because uh, you have a very unique area of expertise that outside of maybe movies, I have really no experience with. It's true. It's not that well-known polyamory. Ironically, a lot of people do it, but it's not as widely known, I guess. Yeah. I mean, like most things that are not, I guess, normal Christian behavior, it's been, it's been kind of quiet for the last, I don't know, the entire history of humanity. Multiple partner relationships have been quiet. Yeah, that's well. In Christianity, read that Bible, honey. <laughs> There's lots of begatting and people having, but it's always the men having multiple partners. And that's something that's different about contemporary consensual non-monogamy, at least in the US and kind of like Western countries is that women have multiple partners now too. And that's a big difference. That's that's becoming more prominent here in the US. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um in across human history, I'm a sociologist, mm -hmm. but I've also done this kind of research looking for specifically polyandry, which is one woman with multiple husbands. And that is hard. It's super hard to find. Hardly anybody does that. Whereas polygyny, one man with multiple wives, we have found in almost every society across history and across cultures, wealthy and powerful men get 
multiple women and boys or other men if they want. But very rarely do women have that same access. Yeah, I guess it's more prominent than I thought. I was kind of thinking about that through the lens of my very normal American life. So it's not something I was exposed to very much at all. Uh, but yeah, now that you mention it, uh, looking back through history, there was a lot of that. And still is. Yeah. Around the world, polygamy is almost always in the form of polygyny, the dude with multiple chicks. And uh, it's still quite common. Now, I mean, in the United States, it's, uh, would you call it common? No, not not polygamy specifically. Um, but consensual non-monogamy is freakishly common. It blew my mind when I, so I'm a qualitative researcher, which means I talk to smaller groups of people and get deep insights into relatively few people. We're talking like 200 or so people. Quantitative researchers do much bigger samples with kind of more pat questions. And one of my colleagues um, found in her quantitative research that 20% of the people in the United States have had a consensually non-monogamous relationship that is across age and race and gender one in five and i gotta say when i started doing this in 1996 started this research i would not have i i would have thought it would have been one in a hundred you know like so much rarer i mean when you put it that way i can understand it fully one in five 20 percent it blows my mind but nowadays with like things like Tinder and uh, I feel like the, the whole dating game has changed Absolutely. and how people are meeting each other, uh, hooking up and the, and, and the things of the like. So that number doesn't really shock me. I was, my brain immediately went to marriage. Like I wasn't even thinking just yeah, relationships. Yeah, me too, actually. Ah, uh, <laughs> well, it's actually bigamy is illegal in the United States exactly, and yes. much of the world. So Anyone in a consensually non-monogamous relationship can only marry one of their partners. Yeah, Utah was the last one to uh, make it illegal, correct? Yes, and that was in the 1870s, I think. Geez, I thought it was more recent than that. Possibly the 1880s. No, it was a requirement of statehood for them to join the United States. That's right. They had to make bigamy illegal. But so now you're just talking about people in relationships and how it, it now is it trending upward? Absolutely. So another colleague did a search, did an analysis of Google searches as a way to just look at what people are interested in. And she found um, some very dramatic increase. I can't remember the exact number, but her graph as she graphed it, the line just went in a sharp upward curve that the oh, increase in searches and interest in non well, we've had a We've had a big change in culture yeah. in the past, uh, what, maybe not even, I would say 10, 15 years and how everyone views sex. Because even when I was growing up, it, you st it still wasn't talked about that much. But once you hit 2000, 
it became much more open. People were more open to ideas, more open to trying new things. And I mean, it had to be Tinder, I, in my mind, the thing that blew everything up and changed the whole game. I would agree. In fact, I would say the internet as a whole mm. has changed things. Maybe Tinder had the biggest impact on heterosexuals. I could totally see that. Oh, yeah, but yeah. even before that, in terms of sex and gender minorities, the internet and being able to talk to other people and get advice and find dates and find support online has been a massive game changer for sex and gender minorities across the board. So I would say the whole interest in non-monogamy has been around, I would say we're in our third wave of it actually in the United States, the third wave of consensual non-monogamy and by far the biggest and the most widespread. So what what exactly what exactly is a uh, the the minorities that we're referring to in terms of uh, these relationships? So you know, is it not heterosexual people? Is that who they are? Some of them are heterosexual. By sex and gender minorities, I mean not only LGBTQ folks. Mm -hmm but also people in unconventional relationship styles like polyamory, mm. swinging, relationship anarchy, monogamish relationships, open relationships, and BDSM. And so there's a lot of kind of overlap between all of those different categories. So some people practicing consensual non-monogamy are definitely heterosexual. Uh, but there's quite a significant overlap with the LGBTQ community. Mostly LGB, not as much T. Right. But the queer folks actually have their own separate thing going on when it comes to non-monogamy, more separate from the heterosexuals who also tend to mix with the bisexuals but the people more oriented towards either same-sex relationships or gender nonconformity, they tend to have their own sphere. So what, what, is, it, what is it that they're doing that's different from uh, everybody else, I guess? The heterosexuals are very frequently, especially if it's a, an established female-male couple, Yeah they are often looking for a woman to add to their relationship for a trio of a couple with a chick. Mm. That's a super common heterosexual fantasy, especially for men. Um, and sometimes for women, definitely. But there tends to be like, for instance, the swinging world is very heterosexual and there tends to be much more acceptance of same sex interaction among women, especially if the men get to watch after they've had one orgasm and are in their refractory period getting ready to have another go, um, but very discouraged same sex contact between men in most swing environments that is forbidden, hmm. you know, either just yeah. by social more or actively written down in rules posted on the wall. 
I mean, I can understand that because you still see a huge uh, homophobic um, community within men nowadays. Like it, it, the the way lesbians are viewed and the way uh, homosexuals or, or homosexual males are viewed is very different. It, the way they're treated is very different. Absolutely. You know, it's very it's much more accepted the other way. I don't understand why, but yeah. Well, I think it's because heterosexual men find it appealing to watch women together, to think about women together. And then in their fantasy, they come in and you can't see the bunny ear, you know, air quotes I'm making, but they come in and finish the women off. Like the women get each other all hot and bothered and then the big penis <laughs> comes in for the final act. And the irony is in my research, I found that not only is it really hard for for couples to find that free-floating bisexual woman that wants to hook up with them both. There's just not enough of those women around. Mm -hmm. um, but also, sometimes when they do find a woman and hook up, the women end up being way more interested in each other, and the dude is kind of sidelined. And in his imagination of the event beforehand, he was the main event. Like they were both focused on him. Yeah. And when he's actually kind of off to the side and they're still going, it turns out to be kind of disappointing for him sometimes. In fact, the, the men in my research have used the phrase, not all that <laughs> enough that I subsectioned a book, a, a part of my book entitled A Threesome Sex. Not all that. <laughs> um, I mean, people that I've known in my life who have been in, involved in threesomes and stuff, a lot of them you talk to say they wouldn't do it again because whatever relationship they were in, it destroyed their relationship. Because one person was more into, what, you know, another one or something. And it just, it that relationship just detonated afterwards. That happens sometimes, especially if people are in a more monogamous mindset of you can really only be attached to one person that definitionally makes everyone else a sex toy. Mm. And if that is what they are down for and you are down for, then that's fine. People treat each other like sex toys all the time. As long as that's the negotiated thing, go for it. Having casual sex is awesome. But when people are looking for more emotional connection or they're not looking for it and it just happens, that can really destabilize a monogamous mindset. So uh, one of the things that uh, came up when we, when we found you before we started the episode was that polyamory is different from non-monogamy or other forms of non-monogamy. So uh, not being well-versed in it, what exactly is the difference between the two or between the many? I don't know how many there are. There's quite a few. There's uh, six primary forms of consensual non-monogamy practiced in the United States today. We talked about polygamy. Yeah. And that is around marriage specifically. Poly meaning multiple, gammy meaning marriage, multiple spouses. Right. Um, then there's open relationships, which are just non-monogamous. They don't have a lot of 
other information associated with that. If someone tells you they're in an open relationship, you really don't know that much about what they're doing, except that it's non-monogamy versus, for instance, someone says they're swingers, they're in a swinging relationship, then that gives you some sense that they have emotional supremacy, most likely, oh, right. between the two of them, that they are kind of emotionally exclusive, but sexually non-exclusive. So most often swingers can have sex with other people, but should not catch feels. Mm. It's kind of their agreement. <laughs> Whereas the polyamorists are all about the feels. They are trying to have multiple emotionally intimate, perhaps sexually intimate as well, perhaps not. But the emphasis is on the long-term nature of the relationship and the emotional intimacy and the fact that everybody not only knows about each other, but sometimes hangs out together. Hmm. And not necessarily hang out in the group sex way, although, yeah, sure, some of them have group sex, but much more often in the kind of like make dinner and fold laundry and <laughs> play a board game kind of way. Um, just hanging out together, going out for, you know, going out to see a movie or something. Now, I, I could be totally wrong about this, and I, I don't know what your preferences are, but the polyamory in that sense where you're basically with multiple partners as heterosexual monogamous guy that seems like a ton of work that i just don't want to deal with <laughs> i was about to say the same one, thing one partner is a lot yeah 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 that's actually one of the reasons i'm not polyamorous is because i just don't have that much emotional effort like if I'm not in love with someone, then I can have multiple partners, no problem. Mm. But for me, once love is involved, I'm just not interested in other people, really. So, um, yeah, I can absolutely see not wanting to maintain multiple relationships. I think that's one of the reasons why swinging is so much more popular than polyamory because swingers get kind of the best of both worlds. They get the emotional exclusivity and they often pass in conventional society as just regular heterosexual monogamous people, very conventional on the outside, but then they get to have all the sex with all the different people. Whereas for polyamory, generally, the emotional intensity and commitment is such that, you know, they, they have a fewer number of partners. Like swingers, if all you're doing is having sex with multiple people, then it just doesn't take that much maintenance. But polyamorous people, the more kind of in-depth and the more emotionally intimate your partnerships are, the fewer you can maintain over a long Period. So yes, in fact, I think it takes a very specific kind of person oh, yeah. looking for polyamory. Almost someone who's willing to make relationships their hobby. Yeah, it would almost have to be. Because ma maintenance for swinging is really just a shower. But maintenance for polyamory is your lifetime. It's, 
I, I could see maybe the uh, the appeal because, you know, if you're the kind of person who loves to love people, it's lots of attention to share around. But uh, for, for I think for most people, maybe obviously that's changing, but for most people, that's that's quite a chore. One one thing that uh, I, I, I don't think I ever even considered this aspect of polyamory or non-monogamy, but one thing you specialize in is children of these families, right? Right. So I never considered the fact that there even were children in these families. Uh, just that's just my bias because I, I associated all of that really with swinging. Swingers have kids too. Oh, that for sure, for sure. I actually know know some people whose parents are swingers, and uh, uh-huh. it, it was an interesting discovery for them because, of course, they didn't know until they were already sexually active. Right. Uh, but yeah, they found out in the strangest way, which was uh, finding their parents' homemade porn. It'd be a hell of a shock for somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Parents hide that porn better. Yeah. <laughs> so other than traumatic events like that, how how do you see children from those families developing versus people uh, in heterosexual families? Um, well, some of these families are heterosexual. Oh, okay. I think a better, better um, way to say it would be children in monogamous families. Right, right. Um, I, yeah, I suppose I should say it that way. I would say children from polyamorous families, at least those who participated in my study. And that's a big caveat that people who are, you know, abusing their children or cooking up some meth in their bathtub, they're not going to volunteer for a study. Right. (laughs) You know, so the, the people in my study think they're, healthy enough and in good enough shape to let a researcher come into their home and talk to their kids. Mm. So it's already kind of the self-selected cream of the crop. It's already got its own bias. In a way, exactly. Wouldn't it be interesting, though, if you had the people making meth doing your studies as well? Wouldn't it? I, you know, (laughs) I I think it would be interesting (laughs) to see that comparison because of these kind of together functional non-meth non-abuse families (laughs) these kids are turning out amazing not only do they have so lots because i started this research in 1996 a lot of the people who were involved in it in polyamory then are what's called early adopters and early adopters tend on the on the whole to have more social power than other people because they're safer being out Mm. as whatever kind of unconventional relationship. So these folks in my study tend to be white, middle-class, highly educated, very highly educated. Well over half of my sample has a graduate degree, which is very unusual compared to Boy, I don't know the number off the top of my head. I think it was 17% of the general public has a graduate degree. So that's a huge difference. Mm. Um, So in part, these kids are doing great because they have race and class privilege from their parents. I would say the third reason they're doing so great and most important, perhaps, for my study is that all of these extra resources and all the extra attention and the wider social safety net of support these kids have 
turns out to be incredibly advantageous for them. Not only as children, they get a ton of attention. Um, they, you know, when they are children, they, what they focus on is, you know, stuff that kids focus on. Like when you've got six or seven adults identifying as, you know, close caring family members, then you get a lot of loot hmm. for your birthday and for Christmas. And when you've got eight or 12 grandparents, that loot magnifies, you know, so, so younger kids are all about the loot and totally thrilled for that. Older kids really appreciate the, you know, once they become aware of like, oh, I can go to this school because we live with all these people. Like they start to see how they can live in more, more expensive housing or have, you know, just more opportunities and more resources. And then once they're older, like moving out of the house, establishing their own families and lives, they see the kind of emotional intelligence and resilience they got from growing up in a very high communication, high negotiation family as the most useful thing for them that they really value that emotional training that they got through osmosis by watching their parents talk about feelings and tell each other the truth and for parents that honesty in relationship often trickles down to their parenting relationship that they tell their kids the truth too so these kids as adults tend to have emotionally intimate relationships with their parents because they can be honest. They can be whoever they are and the parents accept them. Now, because your data is so askew there, are you trying to do more studies that maybe hit a broader group of people? There is no way I could do that without <laughs> funding. I have oh, to say okay. to have done the study I have done for the past 25 years, <clears throat> with no funding has been, you might need to bleep this out, I don't know, so hard and so fucking amazing that I was able to do that. Like it has been such a oh, challenge and well worth it, you know, but without oh, absolutely. funding and support, there's absolutely no way. I can barely finish this study. I gotta imagine someone's looking into that, no? like. Because I understand what you're saying. Well, you know what? It's the kiss of death academically, in at least what, in funding? sociology. It's not so much in psychology, and there are people doing larger studies, but people watched what this did to my academic career, and it scared them yeah. off with good yeah. reason. You know, I've paid a huge price within sociology for studying this and studying it so early. Now it's a lot safer to go into, especially in psychology. That's where all the exciting research about consensual non-monogamy is coming out. They are finding funding, um, but it's also, so the funding is an issue and also getting permission. Academic research is uh, overseen by these 
bodies that are very legally focused and very concerned about, mm. you know, um, legal. What is that when you're open to being sued? It's risk, but there's another word. Oh, I, I, it's Whatever, not tip my but, tongue. I know what you're talking about. We're on the same page. Yes. Yeah. Um, and for good reason, in the past, some social science researchers in like the 40s and 50s did some really creepy things. You know, they were they had oh, yeah. very poor ethics and ended up damaging their participants. So research should absolutely be overseen, but overseen on behalf of protecting the participants and not necessarily protecting the institution from any shred of risk, because that means you can only study things that have already been studied because right. studying new things brings risk. So it's super hard to get permission to talk to kids is what I'm saying. They have to be willing to look outside the the box. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, you, I, I feel like we're starting to see that a little bit more nowadays, but we've been in a long stretch where no one's going to do that, <laughs> especially when it comes to legally. Yes. Now, did you know, yeah. did you know when you started this research that it would have this impact on your career and your trajectory uh, academically? No, no idea. And initially it was not as bad. I noticed definitely that there were, several jobs I didn't get, um, even though they really enjoyed my teaching, mm -hmm. they were like, one person was like, you're just too hot to touch. We can't touch that research topic with a 10 foot pole. Mm. We cannot have you at this university. Um, when I got hired at Georgia State in Atlanta, they hired me specifically because of the research I did. And that was super exciting for a while there. They were very supportive of my research until the financial crash of 2008, when not only Georgia State, but universities across the country shifted to expecting all tenure track faculty to bring in six figure grants. And if you couldn't get a six figure grant, you were not going to receive tenure. So I looked super hard, finally was able actually to get a grant, but it was only $80,000. And when I went to my chair to tell him I got the grant, he literally laughed out loud and said, oh, oh don't geez. even bother. Wow. <laughs> so the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Health, you know, those are the places that give those big grants. And they don't, they're not interested in, for one thing, studying a topic they see, especially at the time, as so fringe, I think now that we know 20% of the population engages in consensual non-monogamy. They might be more into it, but at the time, no one had those numbers yet. Um, so they see it as fringe. And also there's this kind of focus on problems in grant making. So if I, for instance, was studying drug use in these families or abuse or something like that, that I would have been much more likely to get funding. And in fact, if I had seen those 
things happening in my data, I absolutely would have followed up on them because it would have meant I could have kept my job. I loved that job, but in no way was I going to manufacture that in order to keep my job. That would have been not only poor science and bad ethics, but it would have been a lie. What I found actually was that these families have a lot of resilience and some incredibly creative ways to deal with blending multiple adults and multiple children. And so those strategies polyamorous families use could be very useful for divorced families or other kinds of blended families or families that are facing difficulties and don't want to divorce. You know, how do you grow and change over time within a relationship? The polyamorous folks have that down. So those were the grant applications I was putting out. Let's look at these families and see how they can show other families, you know, how to make it through difficult times, like learning resilience. But that's not what these grantors wanted to hear. <laughs> you know, that I'll wasn't, they weren't going to fund framing was all wrong. Yeah. You should have gone with the finding the meth heads and then you would have been fine. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That what, what, that's what was missing from my exactly. research was meth. Now, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that people that grow up in these families are so much more resilient and better at solving, uh, I, I guess, complex interpersonal problems. Because this is totally anecdotal, uh, but most of the time what I'm seeing in modern society is there's a a serious lack of even mental resilience in a lot of people now. I don't know if that's something that you saw a difference in, but I, now I'm wondering if, you know, maybe the people that turned you down for that research before, if they were to look at the data now, they might see that with the information you were providing, they could have, you know, made the United States a lot healthier. Because I'm seeing a lot of, I wonder. a lot of lack of this resilience that we're talking about here and the inability to deal Absolutely. with problems. And interestingly enough, the kids in my research talk about that. They see that in their peers, either that the peers have never kind of been self-responsible mm -hmm. or dealt with people who are different from them. So for instance, they get to college, they're living in a dorm, and they're interacting with all sorts of different people, and they don't know how to self-regulate in terms of drugs, sex, alcohol, time, money, you know, whereas the kids from the polyamorous families had a lot more self-responsibility. The polyamorous parents tend to do what sociologists call free-range parenting, which we contrast with helicopter parenting, which is where helicopter parents are all, you know, like manage everything about the mm -hmm, child. Right. The free range parent is much more like, I'll keep you safe within these bounds. I'll provide you food and shelter. But if you don't wear your coat, you're going to be cold. I'm not going to bring you <laughs> a coat. If you're three, I'm going to bring you a coat. If you're 13, you're going to have to deal with being cold because you're old enough to know you should bring a coat. And so that kind of 
like dealing with small consequences like being cold while you're waiting for the bus builds that kind of, oh, I'm going to bring a coat next time, <laughs> you know, dealing with these age appropriate consequences to actions encourages people to think about and take responsibility for their choices. And being in a very high communication family provides these kids with the interpersonal tools to reestablish emotionally intimate relationships wherever they go with all kinds of different people because they've dealt with a lot of different people growing up. So not only are they kind of more personally resilient themselves, but they have more resilient relationships with their families because they can be adults, you know, they can grow up and have honest conversations with their parents about, you know, like, oh, Everything. I screwed that up. <laughs> my first semester of college, I spent all my student loan money on weed and beer, and now I'm broke. And the family's like, yeah, you screwed that up. What are you going to do? We'll lend you some money so you can pay your rent. And next time, how are you going to do this differently? Whereas some other kid might not be able to say, I screwed this up. I need your help. Right. I'm interested to see where we're going uh, in that direction with kids culturally. Because for a while there, we were really bad with the helicopter parenting. And I have three kids. Jerry has two. And you could still see it really bad in some areas. And then others you just see where they don't even notice that their child's doing anything. Right. Yeah, I actually, I, I practice that, uh, that same attitude that you're talking about myself. And it's funny that you mentioned the, uh, the being cold as an example, because there's been a number of times where both of my kids have said, no, it's not cold. I don't need a jacket. And then we get where we're going and they say, dad, can I have your coat? And I have to tell them, no, you can't have my coat. I'm cold. <laughs> right. I brought a coat. <laughs> but the next time, are they like, oh, I think I might bring a coat. They are. They, they do learn. Sometimes yeah. they learn a lot slower than I would think they, they so, learn. But yeah, they sometimes. do. Sometimes. <laughs> I, I prefer to give them that independence. I, I, and to be honest, my main driving factor behind that is I don't want 30-year-old kids living with me. Well, yeah. Right, <laughs> right. Or kids that don't know how to make food yeah. or do laundry. Yeah, I don't want to have to know. worry about my kids when they're adults. I don't want to have to constantly be wondering, I wonder if they're going to starve to death because they don't know how to take care of themselves. Right. So it's I, I can see why what you're talking about really makes a difference. Because myself, I came from... It's not, it's not non-monogamy, but I came from uh, basically two families because my parents have never been together for as long as I can remember. So I was always bouncing back and forth with many siblings from many different people. So there's a huge array of people that I've been interacting with from really different demographics for my whole life. So I can see personally how that would help them especially if it was in a more stable environment. Right. Yeah. Dealing with new people and learning new things. I think it's not only good for the kids, but really good for the parents to be able to kind of spread that parenting care around among multiple people and sometimes get examples of how to parent differently learning from other people in the family. Oh, 
this is how you set a boundary. I see what you do when that kid has a tantrum and tries to manipulate you. I see how you handle that. That was great. Yeah. I'm going to do that because my sit on the floor and cry with the child is not working. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I've been doing wrong all this time. (laughs) You have something else called uh, the bonding project. Does that that tie into the kids or is that something totally different? That's totally different, actually. Um, The bonding project is a relationship test. Oh, okay that takes about 10 or 15 minutes, maybe. It's free and it's online at bondingproject.com. And it helps people kind of think about and determine if they wanna bond one-to-one, one-to-many, many-to-many, or solo. And so there's those four categories of bonding and then four different ways people from their responses, four different ways people are kind of oriented towards those. So they're either comfortable, curious, cautious, or challenged. So it's a pretty fine-toothed kind of assessment of how do you feel about the number of people you want to bond with. And it's just the beginning of a larger project that's coming, but this is our kind of initial screening tool that helps people figure out what they, what kind of relationship they might be interested in. I say, so when they take it, when they're done, it tells them what type of relationship they're looking for. It gives them an email with results that say you scored. So for instance, it'll tell you in each of the four categories, let's say on one-to-one, you scored comfortable. On one-to-many, you scored curious. On many-to-many, you scored challenged. And on solo, you also scored curious. So that would indicate that if you're challenged with many to many, that might not be the ideal relationship style for you. Now, I got to imagine there are probably a lot of older people, youngers, maybe not so many, but a lot of older people who, if they have been thinking about this for years, they're on the fence or they're scared to make a motion in any way. Once they take this, this test, does it give them any sort of resources or anything to find people? Yes, actually, we're working on building communities. One of the co-founders of the Bonding Project, Jess Wise, is also a co-founder of the um, online community platform Mesh. And so we're working on building communities in Mesh for each of the four bonding styles And we're also eventually, this is an online test right now, but we're developing it into an app that will have a dashboard. So people can take not only this initial test, but then additional tests in the future about, for instance, family style. You know, do you want to have kids or not? Mm. Do you want to be the one that bears the child or would you rather someone else do that? Would you like to be child adjacent, but not really fully responsible for the child? Do you want 
children that only visit occasionally, you know, like things like that. All those questions just opened up a book of worms in my head. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and wouldn't it be nice to have that on your dashboard, be like, yeah, I'm open to being child adjacent, but I don't want to bear any more children. That would really be helpful for people who are trying to date you to know, okay, I have this person in this category. Like, that's a great fit. I don't want any more kids either. Or I'm looking to get pregnant, maybe not with this person. So then hopefully once we get these dashboards built out, people will be able to compare their entire relationship network. Or if they're polyamorous, sometimes they call that a polycule, you know, with five or six different people who generally aren't all having sex with each other, but are sharing partners um, and kind of like an extended family. It'd be good for those folks to know how everybody feels about having kids or spending money or having people over. How often, you know, are you comfortable having guests? Do you like it when people drop by unexpectedly? Is that a fun surprise or is that rude? And you want them to call first, you know? So having all of these things where people can compare with multiple partners, I think can really help smooth out some existing challenges and identify possible future challenges so people aren't blindsided by them. I'm interested to see how that works out. Now, one, one, th um, in one thing you mentioned, uh, which kind of sparked a uh, point of interest while you were talking there is that there's a test for solo. Is I, I I never considered that either. That some people have a preference to not be in any relationship. Is that is that common too? Absolutely. There are and being solo doesn't necessarily mean not be in any relationship. It generally means not wanting to organize your life around a romantic relationship. Mm. Either having yourself as your primary partner and then having other people as friends with benefits or sometimes even people you love deeply but don't necessarily want to have to be home at six o'clock and go to Aunt May's for, you know, Thanksgiving and, yeah. you know, don't want to be kind of accountable to another person that way want the freedom and flexibility of having emotionally intimate, perhaps even sexually intimate relationships with others, but not having that be the center of your life and having that, you know, and anything you do, you've got to check back in with your partner first. How do you feel about, do are we doing this on Friday night kind of so, thing? So they're, More not, independent. they're not necessarily isolated. They're just, uh, functioning mostly on their own accord, basically. For many people, yes. And some of them are asexual and don't want sexual relationships at all. Um, some of those folks like emotional intimacy, but not sex. And so multiple partner relationships are great for that. They can have an emotionally intimate partner who then can have sex with someone else. It opens up the world for the asexual partner to have all kinds of different relationships because they don't have to restrict their partner. Like for an asexual partner to partner with someone 
monogamously means that person never gets to have sex again. Right. But if they're not monogamous, that person can still have sex with other people. And just if you look at the demographics in the United States, there are more single, meaning unmarried and unpartnered people now than at any other point in our history. Lots of people are choosing to remain single and it doesn't mean they're lonely or malfunctioning. They like it. It's working great for them. Yeah, my wife and I have actually talked about that before. Uh, we don't plan on getting divorced. We're very happily married. Uh, but we've had conversations about like what would happen if we had to get a divorce for some reason. And we are actually both of the same opinion that I don't think we'd want to be in a relationship again, or at least not anytime in the foreseeable future after it happened, because I, I don't know, we like being together, but it, it seems like that if we were not together, we'd rather be by ourselves. You know, as far as a long-term relationship and being uh, emotionally tied to somebody else after that. Especially if you can have deep emotional connections with other people. Let's say you've got great friends yeah. and dear family. Then basing your primary life relationship around whether you're attracted to someone or not, or whether that kind of sexuality connection is sustaining all these decades later that clearly has not worked for a lot yeah. of people <laughs> so i would say that solo bonders often will have very important relationships in their lives but it's not necessarily one romantic relationship that is kind of supreme above everything else mm, that makes sense that's my future if i ever get divorced that's that's how i'll end up uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> Um, you'd have a lot of choices, lots of options, especially now with the internet, because really all yeah. this stuff that everyone's using now, it was not available to me. I had to work hard to get a date before. So me and my wife have been together since we were uh, about 20. And, uh, that was before smartphones really took off. It's so much easier now for right? all these young people. They don't, they don't know how easy they have it. Absolutely. I remember actually when online dating very first hit the scene, people were embarrassed about it. Like it was embarrassing to meet your partner online. And now there's not only no embarrassment, but how else do you do it? Yeah. Now, now <laughs> it's know, becoming, like everybody dates. Now online. it's becoming weird to try and approach somebody in person. They, everyone, everyone right. is starting to develop this preference where they'd rather meet you on these apps and then decide to start talking to you, which I, I also think that's a little right. bit weird too, but that could just be my bias. I think it's probably more your bias because of when you grew up. I mean, <clears throat> I think the time you're, you're right. I, I value human interaction over uh, doing it on these these apps. But then again, I've never tried the app. I want to say that it had to be around 2010 when it started to actually, or when it took a big change when people kind of accepted it as the norm. You know, what I, mean? I remember buddies that would tell me before then that like they met someone online. And you're mm, like, weird. Mm, that's a little <laughs> weird. Yeah, it's, it's become a lot more. Yeah, common. it's funny. And I think you're right about the influence of Tinder. That's been huge. And not just Tinder, but Match.com and, you know, OkCupid oh, and Plenty of Fish. There's a zillion dating apps out there. I was going to say, how many are out there What now? was that, Andy? I said, how many of them oh, are countless. out there now? Uh, so what what got you into checking out all, all of this polyamory, non-monogamous stuff if you're 
you you yourself are in a uh, monogamous relationship, right? Actually, no, I am a monogamous person. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Um, but well, and now I'm separated from my wife, but she is very much non-monogamous, and that was a challenge. Um, I initially got interested in it because I fell in love with someone who wanted non-monogamy. And as an intellectual, I intellectualize things that frighten me. And it scared the crap out of me. I heard when he told me he wanted multiple partners, I heard, you're too fat and you're bad in bed, Mm -hmm. which is what a lot of monogamous people, when their partner says they want multiple partners, monogamous people are like, oh, does that mean there's something wrong with me? Yeah. Yeah. Because as a monogamous person, like I don't start looking at other people unless I'm done with my partner. Only then do I start looking around. Um, But as I've learned doing my research, some people are polyamorous or multiplistic by orientation. It's a deeply hardwired part of their personality. And if some of them, if they could change it, they would. But others of them are like, nope, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of one specific respondent who paid a huge price for being polyamorous. She was a member of a religious community that rejected her for being bisexual and polyamorous. Like she lost everything. Well, that's the problem nowadays, right? I mean, it's more accepting nowadays, but we've come a long way. (laughs) And it's, it's usually it's religious areas that still have the issue with everything, right? Yeah, I would say it is more accepting depending on where you are. Oh, yeah. If you're in (laughs) California or, you know, Washington or Massachusetts or New York, you're pretty safe. But if you're in Texas or Oklahoma, you know, you can lose your job, you lose your housing, lose your kids. If... we did an episode with a uh, trans man and it blew my mind that he was from, um, where was it? It wasn't Louisiana. Where uh, was it, Jerry? It was somewhere in the Midwest. I don't Kentucky. Remember. Yeah. Yep. Kentucky. And I was like, good. You're in Kentucky? Like, that's just, you just made your life so much harder. <laughs> but he's in a society that's accepting him. So, you know, go wherever makes you happy. Yeah, the regions of the United States make a huge difference for for life, for sex and gender minorities especially. So they tend to gravitate towards large cities because it's physically safer, more support, and more ability to find partners and healthcare and jobs and housing. I mean, I, so I grew up in Mass and I now live in Rhode Island. So none of that stuff ever really, be, I never thought of any of it. It's just, who cares? They're doing whatever they want to do. Right. <laughs> like, let them Yeah, go. whereas if you're in Texas, it, they, they actively go out of their way to get involved. Yeah, and most, I mean, most of the people who are having a problem with it that I've come across, it's because they're either, they're, they're in their bubble, especially nowadays, where they're only listening to their bubble and they've never actually come into contact with anyone. Right. Well, I think that's absolutely true of all the laws they're throwing at transgender athletes. The number of transgender athletes that have actually gotten scholarships, you can count on one hand 
There's really? some, I mean, it's a single digit thing that they are passing laws about that affect so many people. It's really they're manufacturing a problem where there is none. Well, I can understand that one though. You know, like, not that I understand the laws. I can understand that the that both sides have an issue with it, right? That so the the trans people want to be included in the what they believe is their correct uh, gender, right? And then on the same side, you have biological people who also want to be. They, they are thinking there's an unfair advantage, and so how do you include everyone? Right, and that's a very difficult conversation that needs to be had and a lot of places don't want to have it they're just shutting things down well and they're not having it based on facts they're having it based on emotions paranoia and emotions (laughs) because the facts indicate transgender athletes have no advantage over cisgender athletes especially if they have been taking hormones and they've had any kind of modifications that they are not actually advantaged over cisgender athletes. But that requires looking at facts and science to have that conversation. Well, I think a lot of people, when they're thinking of a, a you know, a, a trans woman, they're thinking of a man who is, you know, extremely physically built, who became a woman uh, and they're not thinking of they've gone through the transition and everything, but I mean, there is, there is a physical difference there. Skeletally, definitely. Yes. Yeah. And muscular attachment. But once trans folks have had hormones for an extended period of time, hormonally, I mean, the height remains the same, but for instance, the fat distribution changes the muscle tone changes center of gravity even changes so it's not a man wearing a dress it's truly a transgender person yes and i think they also you're getting into the fact that people they're they're putting their one bias on it right they're just thinking of that one specific person they're not grouping a bunch of people and they're also taking on the fact that there are going to be people out there who are going to try to screw over other people I think society nature. is so hateful towards transgender people mm. that few, if any, people pretend to be transgender to gain an advantage. There is no advantage to be gained there. People only come out as trans when it's real for them because it's so painful and difficult. Society makes it so hard. Yeah, when we had um, Tim on, that was his name. Uh, I mean, we had ne- I had never thought of it for obvious reasons, but he, he went through just how hard it was for him to use his bathroom. So to use a man's bathroom, it was incredibly difficult for him. It, it, for me, I never thought of it. Why would I? Right. You know what I mean? So it's interesting to hear their perspective. I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> yeah, we got, I'm sorry. I introduced the trans thing and got us off topic. I'm okay with that. <laughs> that's okay. That, that's that's a tough topic to to get into, and you being more of the uh, the academic expert uh, are a good counter to our episode with a transgender man because uh, we actually had him on specifically because we don't ever hear 
directly from someone in that uh, uh, that area of society. So we want we want right. to get their opinion on it and find out what life was like for him as an actual person instead of a talking point. So it was really an eye opening right. conversation for us because we found out all kinds of things that not only had we never heard of, but we never even thought of it. But let's talk about something that is uh, a little little more exciting here. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I'm always game. It turns out that uh, Dr. Eli is big on BDSM. Yeah, yeah. I know a lot about it, actually. Um, and again, I don't practice it myself. I, I think of myself as French vanilla. <laughs> um, kinky people are generally... They call non-kinky people vanilla. Yeah, I heard that one, yep. And I don't like pain, and I'm way too lazy <laughs> to tell people what to do. I don't like that at all. But I'm way too defiant for anyone to tell me what to do. <laughs> so it, it just BDSM doesn't work for me. But I know a lot about it because my polyamorous respondents kept telling me about it, BDSM, BDSM. And I was like, what is this that you are talking about? So after I finished my dissertation study on the polyamorous folks, I started studying who identi- people who identify as kinky. So that was kind of a natural- Because there is a lot of- that, that was a natural progression because it kept coming up? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. And I was um, teaching and living in Atlanta that has a huge kinky scene. Um, so it was easy for me to gain access to that group of people and start investigating, what is this? And like a big question for me was why do people do this? Yeah. Which I think as a vanilla person, a lot of vanilla people are like, that does not look like fun. Why do you do that? <laughs> and I think for People, again, who are wired that way, the pleasure and pain centers in the brain are so close together that they can read that as blended. Whereas for me, pain just feels like pain. Like it doesn't feel enjoyable to me, but some kinky people really enjoy that sensation. And that's not the only sensation involved in kinky sex but it's a common one i can understand the whole enjoying pain thing i mean i think there's a threshold there but i also gotta imagine bdsm stuff is getting more and more popular as well i don't know if it'll ever be uh the majority but i gotta imagine it's coming up well some aspects of kink i would say are in the majority like for instance spanking even people who don't identify as kinky might have spanked each other during sex. It's super common. A little swat on the bum. You know, even if you don't do it a whole bunch, it's just, it's so common. People just want to smack each other's butts and get their butts smacked. It's kind of fun. (laughs) But so that I would say is kind of a gateway behavior to kink. Um, Kinky people call that any kind of impact on the body like spanking call that impact play and that's super common often starts with spanking and then as people get more interested in it they start using implements like uh canes or floggers or whips things like that that sounds brutal i guess it depends on your uh your preference 
Um, so before we get further into this, can you just clarify for people who aren't really sure what exactly is BDSM? BDSM is kind of an amalgamation of a few different activities and or behaviors and or identities. So the B and D stands for bondage and discipline. So bondage is tie you up and discipline is smack you around a little bit. I would say that or like submission. Well, and that's next. So that's B and D. DNS involves dominance and submission. And dominance is tell you what to do. And submission is yes, sir. <laughs> and it's that dominance and submission, very importantly, is a negotiated power exchange. So the submissive person first tells the dominant person what's okay and what's not. Um, so it's not, that's a big difference, I would say, between, for instance, intimate partner violence or abuse mm. is that the person who's hitting the other person generally doesn't have their permission. It's not a negotiated thing and it's not meant to be fun. Whereas in kinky sex, people talk about it first and the intent underlying is enjoyment, fun and play and orgasms, not terrorism or bullying. So that's the DNS, dominance and submission. And then S and M is sadism and masochism. Sadism is the glee at inflicting sexual pain and masochism is the joy of experiencing that sexual pain. And some of these identities go together routinely, but not always. So for instance, many sadists are also dominant and many masochists are also submissive, but not all the time. In fact, a lot of people, especially in younger generations, do what they call switching where they are dominant in some settings and submissive in another or sadistic in some settings and masochistic in another, but they're not always kind of stuck in one role. But for some people, it doesn't feel like being stuck in one role. For some people, it just feels like that's authentic, authentically who they are and they don't switch around. Yeah, you're not stuck if that's where you want to be. Right, right. Or if that's just who you deeply are in your personality right some people just really are very submissive and don't switch into being dominant or some people are super dominant and trying to be submissive is not comfortable for them yeah or they just can't do it or it's not enjoyable it ruins the game it ruins the fun so how, how do couples deal with it if one person is into this kind of kink but the other person wants nothing to do with it they does one just not get what they're looking for at that point? It really depends on what, how open the couple is and how their communication is. Sometimes people will choose non-monogamy in that case. So the kinky person can go out and have kinky sex with other people who are excited about kinky sex. Mm. Sometimes the partner who is not kinky can develop 
at least some skills in that area. Um, it's hard to pretend to enjoy it, though, especially if the kinky person wants to do something to the non-kinky person. It's generally easier the other way around. If the kinky person wants something done to them, the non-kinky person can often be down with that to some degree. Um, if consensual non-monogamy doesn't work for them, sometimes people will then see a professional. There are people who do kinky sex for a living and that can be easier sometimes for a mixed orientation couple like that, that if the non-kinky person is like, I don't really want you having other partners, but yes, you could see this professional and that's a clearly transactional relationship where you're getting your sexual needs met, but the non, you know, the vanilla person isn't really sharing their partner with someone else because that person isn't really having a relationship it's a transaction i'm interested to see how uh like the whole sex doll market will change things in that like you know what i mean absolutely because there's got to be there's got to be relationships where people don't want to go outside and find another partner but they're still looking for something in that way and the way sex dolls are progressing it's got to be only a few years before you get something crazy out of it absolutely i think the um Right now, kind of the cutting edge with the sex doll industry is artificial intelligence and having a sex doll that's really kind of responsive outside of a few canned phrases, Yeah, you know, but that can actually do different things. But <laughs> artificial intelligence is not quite there yet. Now, have you seen? But uh, boy, sex has been a driver of technology. Oh yeah, sex was a huge reason why webcams developed. So I could absolutely see sex being a driver for AI. Have you seen the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix? I heard about it, but I didn't see it. Th this actually was it good. Um, I don't know if good's the word. It wasn't bad. Okay. Uh, okay. It was. It was very. Uh, maybe artsy is the word. Uh, but that's actually exactly what that movie was about, where Joaquin Phoenix plays a guy who essentially falls in love with AI, which is kind of like a, it was in the movie, it was like a Siri, like on your iPhone. Right. And mm. it, it develops a personality and interests. And it's really like talking to a person. It's, it's the equivalent of me talking to you, Dr. Eli, on Zoom right now, where we're not together, but we're having a normal conversation and you're, you're right. a sentient being. And that's really what it right. turned into. And it, it was a weird movie. I, you should definitely watch it considering your line of work and your research. Yes. There's so, so many sex movies I should watch <laughs> and <laughs> just don't. <laughs> I got to imagine though, like how far away are we from, from sex dolls being a norm? for a lot of people you, know, what you I mean? know i think it's it it's a great way kind of to learn skills to contain sexually transmitted infections you know to maybe do things that you're not having consenting partners interested in so i i could absolutely see or to provide people with disabilities for instance mm. 
access to sexual release that isn't, you know, people with disabilities, it can be very difficult to date, to get out of the house, to even, especially if you want to have sex, sometimes you have to have someone physically assist you. And that gets tricky, Mm -hmm. you know, whereas if you had an AI doll that could have, you know, assistive technology, I could see that as being hugely advantageous. Yeah, I'd imagine it's going to take the same path that uh, sex toys did over the last 20 years where they went from uh, kind of a taboo thing to talk about, especially for men to like now I've heard many people talk about having their own fleshlight. Fleshlights are cool, man. It's a lot better than rough hands. Totally. Absolutely. (laughs) So that's probably going to be the same thing we're seeing with uh, sex dolls, Andy. Instead of just stuffing uh, a giant Barbie in your closet, you'll have one walking around that you can talk to. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite the upgrade from the uh, the inflatable woman. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> have you seen that this BDSM thing, uh, Back, getting back to what we we're talking about before Andy sidetracked us with sex dolls, uh, have you seen so a, a big it. increase the same way you have with uh, non-monogamy and polyamory? Absolutely. And um, I would say that, has also been spurred by the internet. And then, so that was already happening, but then when um, the book and then the movies, 50 Shades of Grey came out, that even blew that up even further. And the interesting thing that where I'm seeing it the most, I would say is in my expert witness practice, that I'm seeing a lot of people who don't have the knowledge about kinky sex, getting into big trouble, unfortunately. And I see a huge difference between my research respondents who I find through communities. So they have access to other kinky people so they can learn skills and norms and techniques and strategies. And the people who just hear about it on the internet and then they're like, oh, this is great we're going to do this. They often, for instance, don't know how to sufficiently communicate around consent. Um, And I see that confusion about what exactly was consented to in cases where some people are saying this was rape and assault. And other people are saying, no, this was kinky sex. I didn't rape you and somebody else saying, yeah, you did rape me, (laughs) you know? So Mm. people with enough exposure to community learn how important consent is and how important it is to very carefully negotiate before you do things and be sober, especially with new partners Once you've had a ton of kinky sex with this person, you know them well, they know your limits, get drunk, that's fine, you know, but the first time someone is choking you, for instance, you should both be sober because (laughs) choking can go horribly wrong. You can, you know, accidentally kill your partner and then you're basically facing murder one Because to say, oh, no, this was consensual. This person said it was okay if I choke them. They're dead. They can't say it was consensual. Right. So you're going to be in big trouble. Yeah, communication is big with especially BDSM. And I I, I saw this when uh, Fifty Shades of Grey came out and every 
every woman I knew was big into this movie and the book. And my wife liked the book. I think she watched the movie too. I, I just didn't have an interest in, in the movie. Uh, but she was telling me about it. She was all excited how, how great the movie or the book was. And I was like, well, yeah, you can choke me too if you want. And her response was, no, I, I don't want to do that. I just like to read about it. But I could see how someone not communicating <laughs> effectively would be like, oh, she likes that. I'm going to choke her tonight as a surprise. Oh, absolutely. Then, then you'll end up in this situation where now they have to call uh, someone like yourself to uh, help them sort it out. Right. Right. Even with the best of intentions, maybe someone wasn't intending assault. But if you don't check it out first and you just start choking someone, if they haven't consented to it, that can be terrifying. Yeah, I would imagine so. For them. Especially someone that you're supposed to be in a trusting relationship with and they spring right. that on you out of nowhere. Yeah. Is that something that you've seen happen? So where someone tried to surprise oh, yes. somebody with it? Yes. Um, surprise choking, I got to say, does not go over well. Oh, I bet. Generally, you got to talk about that stuff first. Um, and surprise grabbing is not generally interpreted as, oh, a fun game by the person getting grabbed. Surprise grabbing, like not in the bedroom, like on the street? Yes. Yes. So oh, okay. sometimes that can be, yeah. for instance, a form of dominance. And sometimes people will just talk about it. Like in one of my cases, these folks had talked about, wouldn't this be fun more, at least for the, for the person who ends up getting grabbed, she was talking about it more as a fantasy. Like, oh, wouldn't it be fun to do this? Kind of like, wouldn't it be fun to go to Bali? <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be fun to skydive? Wouldn't it be fun? And then you to... get back into that communication. Right, thing. <laughs> exactly. But the other person heard that as, I want to do this, like right now, <laughs> and didn't check it out, didn't ask, and if, if had had more training and consent, maybe would have known to say, do you mean you want to do that right now? to check in and say, this is what I'm, he I'm hearing you say, you want to do this. Is this accurate? You want to do this right now? Did not check in, goes for the full on grab. And the, the person on the receiving end of the grab was like, whoa, that was not cool. What are you doing? That was assault. And the other person was like, wait a minute. I, you know, like we were just talking about, she was like, yeah, we were talking about it. I didn't give you permission to do it. So finding that line between fantasy and consent requires a lot of communication. Yeah. So as, as an expert witness in situations like that, what, what exactly is your role in, like in that particular instance, what was your role in that situation? To explain how it may have been consensual. In that situation, actually, um, they ended up settling out of court. So I never, I explained to the lawyers quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But let's go back to the choking, the accidental death by choking. Right. In that one, so the boyfriend is dead. The boyfriend can't say this was consensual. What they needed to, what the jury in that case needed to hear was in some cases, this is consensual. This is how it could be consensual. And 
in that case specifically, um, they had been doing drugs combined with the sex, which is super common. A lot of people do that. It's so common. There's a name for it, chem sex, having chemically enhanced sex, super, super common. Um, but it also leads to sometimes very bad judgment. When you're really high, sometimes you don't use your best judgment. <laughs> Imagine that. And that's well-documented. <laughs> yeah. So this combination of being high can equal bad judgment, plus getting high and having sex is a thing, plus having sex and choking is a thing. So I would present in that case specifically, I presented research on all of those things saying, yes, these things exist. It absolutely could have been consensual in this case. So I don't come out and say, this was consensual. I provide the education that says this person could be telling the truth because people do this they when they get high sometimes they have bad judgment a lot of people combine sex and drugs and choking and sex are a very common thing now how did that one end because i would gotta imagine that's still manslaughter is it not yes but he had been in line for the electric chair because this was a black gay man who accidentally killed a uh, white man okay yeah. and yeah. then got really freaked out so left the body in the hotel room and ran away, had Jeez. registered for the hotel using his real name because was not planning to murder his boyfriend. But once he realized what had happened, he just panicked. So his initial defense was wholly inadequate. His public defender, that fucker, says... I don't want to hear any of this weird faggot shit. What the hell? So won't even listen. And says, oh, we shouldn't tell the jury about the drugs because they'll look down on you. Well, if you don't have the explanation of this was consensual sex that went awry because of drugs, then all it looks like is this guy murdered his boyfriend, you know? So he got uh, murder one with the initial conviction, I was there at the retrial for which there was abundant evidence that he had received inadequate representation the first time. So this second time he was um, in the retrial, he did get manslaughter rather than murder and had only a little bit more time to serve because had been in jail for quite a while. I remember I was down in North Carolina and a couple had rigged up a pigtail to an electrical socket and they were doing shock during sex and whatnot. And he shocked it across her nipples, which anyone who knows electricity, that's a really, really bad idea. And he ended up killing oh, her. Yeah. And I th so he got involuntary manslaughter right. for that because it's a, it, you're still killing someone. You might not have meant to do it, but you're still killing right. someone. Yes. But it's a big difference in the legal system. Did you premeditate? Oh, yes. Did you plan to murder this person? Was this an accident? Intent actually matters there. Oh, yeah. I, so, I mean, he got it down to manslaughter. I'm glad that happened. But, yeah, it's still a, a bad situation that 
could have not gone that way. Right. And again, like experienced kinksters know if you're going to play with electricity, use a designated electric wand. A lot of them do play with electricity, not from the socket. Do not use that powerful current. They will get special toys for that. But if you know electric, electric shocking is a kink, but you don't know enough about it to get advice from the community, that's when you make these mistakes of accidentally killing your wife. Well, even if I know electricity from uh, my work throughout the years, and I'm still going to tell people I don't recommend it because the smallest little bit can still kill you. <laughs> right. Yes. Or even choking for a brief period. Oh, yeah. It only takes someone. like six seconds. Yeah. And I think people don't really understand those risks. And they're intending, hey, we're just having oh, fun yeah. here. Oh, the intent's fine. And sometimes it goes really wrong. Yeah, it can go awry very easily, very quickly. So, Dr. Eli, you have uh, a, lo a lot of years here experiencing some stuff that, you know, doing studies on stuff that most people up, up until recently have been kind of uh, in the dark about in the United States. Uh, but spreading the word about all this stuff, uh, you've been doing that through your studies, uh, all your research uh, as a professor, and also writing some books. Uh, but are, I think you're working on another book right now, aren't you? Yeah, I'm working on a book right now about the children in the polyamorous families. And I just released last year um, a very brief book called Children in Polyamorous Families that summarizes very briefly my findings from the past 25 years, but I'm working on the more academic version of that now with all the evidence and the citations and much more data than just that brief summary. Um, and that's just taking me forever because I work two full-time jobs and then trying to write a book on the side is <laughs> a lot of work. Um, I'm also then after that book will be writing. So that book's going to be growing up in a polyamorous family is the book on kids. The second, the or I guess it'll be my sixth book then will be on aging. I'm going to call that one the persistent polyamorists and look at people, you know, look at the older people in my sample who've been in these relationships for some of them 60, 70 years of sustained polyamorous relationships. And now they're getting older and they're, you know, seeing what it's like to be in their 80s, 90s, you know, as a polyamorous person. So in, in all your books, coming up with uh, that one that you're going to be writing too, you're really going to be having the whole, the whole range covered from from beginning to end and everything in between. With this group of people, that's how longitudinal research works is you follow the same people over time. Right. So I don't think it's the whole story, especially because my sample is heavily weighted towards white people. Oh, right. Yeah, we mentioned that. Yeah. There's new research coming out from researchers of color, actually, on people of color in consensually non-monogamous relationships. And I talk about that mostly as a lack in my research and why aren't more BIPOC people 
in my sample um, in part because I'm white and people of color in the United States have experienced such stereotype and discrimination, I think, to be like, yeah, let me tell you, white person, about my multiple partner relationships. You know, I think they're not eager yeah. <laughs> to give white people more ammunition. Yeah, that makes sense. To look down on that. Now, but researchers of color are now starting that. And that I think is going to be very important data. I, after talking to those researchers initially, are you finding that their experiences are significantly different? You know, I haven't, all of that research is just beginning. Oh, so it's pretty new. Right okay. now. So yes, um, there are a few published studies right now, specifically about people of color in um, consensually non-monogamous relationships, but so little has come out so far that um, I'm really excited. That's a burgeoning area of research and an important one. I'm excited to see the new data that's in the works. Well, we would love to have you back on once you get some more information on that. And actually when your, your book comes out, so we can talk about the details in there that, you know, we, we kind of just touched on a little bit of everything, but we could get into something a little more specific later on. Absolutely. I'd love to come back. This has been fun. It is. Uh, it's a great platform, especially for someone like yourself to share a lot of these ideas instead of just, you know, the typical from the 90s, it was a 10 minute interview on the news and no one really watched those. They didn't get a lot out of it. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, but I wanted to thank you for coming on the show because this has been very insightful for the both of us. Uh, that was a great interview. I, I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, where can people find everything on you? I enjoyed that too. Thanks for having me. Um, I guess the best place to start would be my own website, elizabethchef.com, E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H-S-H-E-F-F.com. Um, you can also find a lot of my research findings on my blog at Psychology Today, uh, my blog under The Polyamorists Next Door, which is the title of my first book, which tells the first 15 years of findings. Uh, you can find The Bonding Project at bondingproject.com. Excellent. And for those of you interested in pursuing her research and uh, this information more, I'll actually have those links in the uh, show description. So you guys can just go right down to the bottom there and take a look at it. And uh, Dr. Eli, thanks again for being on. It was a great time. Thanks for having me. I had fun. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that one. I know I did. Uh, it was enlightening. There was definitely things that I was clueless about. <laughs> uh, yeah, me too. A lot of it, actually. <laughs> Thank you again for listening to Beautiful Bastards Podcast. And please take a few minutes to give us a rating on iTunes. It's a major part of keeping the wheels greased on this shit show. And it helps keep the lights on so we can keep bringing you new content. Remember, you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, our website, and anywhere else you stream your content from. If you enjoy the show, you can find all our links at Linktree slash Beautiful Bastards, or you can check out our website, BeautifulBastardsPodcast.com. And now YouTube, Hans, Booby. Bye, have a beautiful time. You sound like a Hispanic woman. I'm not going to lie.